You're listening to episode 91 of Shades Midweek, a podcast where we talk about theology, culture, and all things Shades. If you're a longtime listener, you know that already. If you're new, welcome. Welcome to the fold. Welcome to the family. It's good to have you with us. I am joined by two other men that are on staff here at the church, Brad Brown and Jonathan Haves. We are here in Four Stream Studios it's a Wednesday afternoon. It's December. How are you guys doing? Doesn't feel like December. It's like a million degrees. Maybe it's just in this room. But I, I think it's I, like I think it's like fifties outside right I, now. It I, got a little colder last night. I thought you were gonna stop after you said a podcast. <laughs> Let's just stop right there. We need when you said uh our, you called our families the you know, welcome to the fold, the yeah. family, called our listeners. I was like, our listeners yeah. need a name. Mm. I don't know. Are they midweekers? What are they? They they need like a mm. Like a name. I feel like, like Deadheads, like the Walking Dead fans, right? <laughs> right, right, something like that. Yeah. I feel like Sage should come up with a name or someone else within the email corridor fan club. Yeah. Ed Hart. Yeah. Uh, well, and that would make Dale sense. Anton, that would make sense because at Shades Midweek, you're part of the conversation. You're not allowed to do that till the end. Not allowed to do that to the end, Brad. There are no rules. My word. Well, speaking of the email corridor, uh, we are we taking a trip down there? Can we? Can we not? I mean, what are the rules on what we're about to do, John Mark? Technically, these aren't emails, but uh, we're still going to go down to the email corridor anyway. Yeah, like John Mark said, we're down here in the corridor, and it's really echoey and empty because... There's no emails down here, and yeah, we're we're bemoaning that fact. Uh, but we do actually have two things to discuss. So the first is, while I didn't receive an email, guys, I did receive a Polo in the old Marco Polo app. Y'all familiar oh, with this app? You're on Marco Polo. Oh, yes, you know I'm on Marco <laughs> Polo because I've tried to get y'all on it a million times, and they won't. Because I have too many other things happening in my right, life. Right, right. They're like, we don't need another, another layer. We don't need another avenue for yeah. Jonathan to invade. I'm trying to focus on scripture reading right now. Oh my word. Yeah. Anyway. Yes, so, I'm praying a lot during Advent. So well, I mean, after that's good. After our <laughs> after our Christmas episode dropped last week, I got a Margo Polo from none other than Tanisha Garnier. Uh, because oh, Tanisha's on there. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. I'm into it. Yeah, Tanisha. Yeah. Well, when I might get on there. I'm offended now. When we, uh, when we did, if you listen to last week's episode, you know we did something we'd never done before. We just called a bunch of people and randomly and asked questions about their favorite Christmas things. Well, we tried yes. to call Tanisha. We actually tried to call her twice, um, and and she saw the missed. She muted us. Yeah, <laughs> I think she was actually putting Ezzy down for a nap, but she saw the missed calls. And she contacted me later, and I was like, oh, well, it was just for the episode. No big deal. Well, after she listened to the episode, she was uh, she was devastated, she said. Absolutely devastated that she did not actually get to participate Makes sense. and be a part. So she left me an 11-minute video message on Marco Polo, which is just furthering the case for you guys to not be on it. Yes. <laughs> an 11-minute message with all of her comments about the episode and such. And so I wish... I wish I could just share it with y'all, but as I said previously, it's 11 minutes. So, Tanisha, Tanisha, we need this as an email. Yeah. We need you to email us so that we can get your picks out there, get your objections out there. Your voice must be heard. So Through an email. Yes. <laughs> Read by one of us. Oh, my word. <laughs> anyway, so please do email us and, and 
good people of midweek, uh, Tanisha's Tanisha's opinions on the Christmas episode shall be forthcoming. And we we never received any emails from anyone on their Christmas picks, which is unfortunate. So we're you still have time. We're just getting well, depressed. It's, it's shocking because you there still were like, have time. There were like seven people that listened to the last episode. So right, John Mark, are you still looking at the stats? Are people still listening? Uh, there were over a hundred listeners on that on that last episode. Right. I'm dreaming wow. of a midweek Christmas. All we're going right. to be doing commercials pretty soon. Uh, the other thing that I found down here in the email corridor, uh, not an email, but a text message uh, that I wanted to share with you all and with the midweek audience uh, about, let's see, 30 minutes or ago, uh, we received a text message, uh, Jonathan, Brad, and myself. Um, Jonathan and Brad were doing an interview that you're going to hear later uh, with uh, Dr. Jonathan Pennington. And while they were interviewing him, I was in the control room monitoring the situation in there. And one Holly Hafes. What? Holly Hafes. The pastor's wife. The pastor's wife. The preacher's wife. Uh, because it's Christmas. We didn't even talk about that Christmas movie. Oh, Tanisha, we, Tanisha was, was quick to let us know that Whitney Houston See, and now we're, were neglected. See, now we're responding. We talked about it last year on the Christmas episode. In it fact, doesn't matter. it was one of my top Christmas movies of Christmas, and I watch it every year, and I listen to the soundtrack and love it and enjoy well, it. Well, back to the text message from the preacher's wife. <sighs> Holly uh, takes it in and said, So... I was listening to the podcast while painting. She, she Are you is, guys painting? At she's home? basically repainting the entire downstairs, like ambitiously before we have a Christmas party. So there you oh, go. Oh wow! Oh wow! All right, and uh, she was listening to uh, Jonathan's Meet a Member episode, I, which I, I don't know why she she's definitely met me before. She's heard all of my stories ad nauseum. I love you, babe. She wanted to see what you said. Uh, so should we play the clip? Sure. Yeah, totally. Sure. Here's the clip from uh, Jonathan's meeting that, that, that Holly mentioned in her text. Changing tastes. Does Jordan listen to the podcast, Brad? Because Holly definitely does not. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Jordan doesn't really. Like I can say this. I can say this very safely. Of course, now that I do, Ashley's probably going to text. She does Holly and be like, Jonathan threw you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's we love true. you, Ashley. It's true. All right. So that's the aforementioned clip. Uh, Holly said, wow, does my husband regularly throw me under the bus because he thinks I don't listen? Hashtag not safe, babe. (laughs) And and the booze were Jonathan's idea, too, if I remember correctly. Oh, Oh my. Well, listen, listen. Okay. All right. I'm not going to try and defend myself too much. Um, But no, my wife is an amazing woman. She mm-hmm. is. She's painting right now with like two toddlers running around. Well, well, not really toddlers. Two little boys running around. She's she is an amazing woman. She's an amazing painter. Uh, she she is godlier than I. All of these different things. But don't don't for a second let her deceive you into thinking she is a regular Shadesman Week listener. Wow. Well, she is not. She is not. So I stand. I stand by my original words. I stand by them. Wow. My wife right. also has a very different sense of humor uh, than I do, so I will definitely, definitely. Well, we'll have to hear back from Holly. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> well, we need to bring her on, and we'll just do the marriage counseling yes. session right here. That, well, that'd be great. I think this we can just, bring Eric back. 
this just reinforces what Ashley said when we called her last week during the Christmas episode that the women need to get on and and the, all the wives need to take over Shades Midweek one one week. Oh, so. they definitely do because when we called Ashley last week, but but didn't call all the other wives. Think, right. Think that uh, some of that was seen as unfair as well. Not by anybody who'll get mentioned um, <laughs> right now. I'm just digging my grave. So. Did, <laughs> did Jordan's giving a lovely example of did, what not to do, babe? This is all for entertainment value. That's what this is for. That's, That's what it's right. about. You got to give the listeners the content they want. Yeah, we're going kind of Kardashian, some <laughs> drama to keep keep the viewership. Oh yeah, man, for sure. Anyway, well. well so well, that's the email corridor. Yeah, let's get out of there. For yeah, this Jonathan week. needs to get the heck out of yeah, the email yeah. corridor. I'm sorry, Holly. I repent in <laughs> dust and ashes. I love you. James album of the week. Is this Beethoven? I like it. Yes. This is uh, Johnny Greenwood, the guitar player uh, and multi-instrumentalist from the UK indie rock band Radiohead. And this is the soundtrack, original motion picture soundtrack, to the historical fiction psychological drama film Spencer. Uh, which is a fictional account of uh, Princess Diana and sort of the end of her marriage uh, to Prince Charles uh, and leaving the British royal family. Um, Starring Kristen Stewart, right? Kristen Stewart, uh, amongst others. Sally Hawkins is also in it. Uh, I recently watched this film over Thanksgiving break with Ashley and her mom, they are big royal family fans. Like they love the royal family. They know oh, yeah. they know way more about it than I do. I'm I I'm not just up on all that stuff. And it's that's because you're an American. I have to say, <laughs> I'm just being. <laughs> I have to say I that talking. I really enjoy. I really enjoyed this film. I thought the film was was uh, pretty awesome. Uh, the director also did the movie Jackie. Uh, which was about Jackie Kennedy. If anyone has seen that, it came out a few years ago. Uh, I particularly love the soundtrack because the soundtrack plays a pivotal role, I feel like, in creating a lot of angst, anxiety, tension. Um, it just makes you kind of gen- generally feel unwell. Uh, so I'll give you a few examples of this here. I'm getting stressed right now. Jackie was Natalie Portman, right? Yes. Yeah, so Johnny Greenwood uses a lot of elements of, uses some classical elements, um, organ, but then also some some elements of like experimental jazz um, as well in the soundtrack and uh, creates like a nice collage of things. But the movie deals a lot with like mental illness and anxiety um, and things like that. So, and the cinematography adds uh, to that as well. So, the whole soundtrack is just incredible. 
And that theme is uh, recreated in a lot of different ways uh, throughout. If anyone wanted to know what death sounded like. Um, if anyone else is a fan of Johnny Greenwood, he also did the soundtrack for the Paul Thomas Anderson film There Will Be Blood that came out in 2007 starring Daniel Day-Lewis, which is personally one of my favorite films of all time. Um, that's, that's high praise. And one of my favorite Daniel Day-Lewis films. Probably my favorite Daniel Day-Lewis film. Uh, so... Yeah. Do you just sit in the car and listen to this? I've been listening to this like, a lot. Are you driving down the highway listening to this? I've been listening to this. If so, do you have road rage? In my office. Just pull up beside John Markey's white knuckling the steering wheel on an open, empty road. Yeah, there's a lot of cool tracks on this, so check it out. Um, not necessarily a fun listen, but an interesting listen. And you get to hear just a master musician, composer, doing things that uh, you would not expect and I mean he's in Radiohead man he's he's incredible so I really want you to Johnny Greenwood get up on Christmas morning and start playing that album and just record Ashley's reaction yeah let me know if anyone else has seen this film I talked with Patrick about it for probably a good 10 minutes uh, we're both huge fans of that movie so yeah the Spencer soundtrack check it out <laughs> This week on Bradford's Book Club, I have brought on a guest to introduce a book, and that guest is Jonathan Hafe's big surprise, you I'm really, sure. You really need to expand your guest list. To everyone. But I'm really glad to have Jonathan on the segment. He's been on before, and it was a real treat. <laughs> Jonathan, why don't you go ahead and tell the viewers a little bit about yourself. Just kidding. Jonathan, go ahead and introduce the book that you have. I'm really excited about it. So uh, the book that I'm going to recommend this week is actually one that I uh, recommended on Sunday in the middle of my sermon, which I, I don't do that very often. But uh, so part of the sermon on Sunday, I began talking about creation care, which is not something that we as Protestant evangelicals talk about a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and there has been a lot of good uh, recovery type work done in recent years. Yeah, it just, no doubt. It just still hasn't really uh, become. It's not flying off the shelves. Right, right, right. But nuanced <laughs> arguments tend to not fly off the shelves. So one of the books that I mention is simply entitled "Creation Care: A Biblical Theology of the Natural World." And uh, two things to mention right here. One is uh, biblical theology, basically. Uh, when you're doing it on a specific subject or topic, it means you're tracing a particular theme from Genesis to Revelation and how that develops throughout Scripture. So what this is doing is it's taking a look at what does Scripture teach us about creation and about caring for creation? What does it teach us about the natural world, starting in Genesis, walking all the way through the narrative to new creation at the end of, of Revelation? So that's what a biblical theology is. This book specifically comes out of a series called Biblical Theology for Life. 
So these tend to not be like crazy huge books. They're paperback most of the time, really affordable. Um, but they're aimed at not just doing good theological work, but good theological work and showing you how it actually uh, applies to your life and, and affects how you live as a believer. So that's the series this book falls in, and it's about creation care. It's written by uh, two authors, a father-son duo, uh, Douglas Moo, yes, M-O-O. Moo. Right. I've actually heard the story behind that name. It has to do with, uh, I I forget which of his uh, uh, ancestors, uh, ancestor sounds like way farther off than it probably is, (laughs) which of his family members immigrated to America, but a lot of uh, immigrants, when they would come into America, especially through Ellis Island and stuff like that, with various interesting spellings or whatever, depending on where they come from, their last names would get changed. Um, and often they get changed based upon cities and different things like, like where they're from and all these. Anyway, mm. that's where his last name came from. It got changed uh, when uh, his family members immigrated into the States and oh, wow. changed to Moo. I so, feel like he's uh, really tall. I, I don't know. I felt like that was important but to mention. Doug Moo is a New Testament scholar. He's written a, a massive tome on Romans, and I'm more familiar with his work than his son's, but his son his name Jonathan Moo, and they co-authored this book together. And just really quickly, I'll read you just a little bit of a blurb. Uh, it says, From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible reveals a God whose creative power and loving care embrace all that exists, from earth and sky to sea and every creeping, crawling, swimming, and flying creature. Yet the significance of the Bible's extensive teaching about the natural world is easily overlooked by Christians accustomed to focusing only on what the Bible says about God's interaction with human beings. In Creation Care, part of the Biblical Theology for Life series, father and son team Douglas and Jonathan Moo invite the reader to open their Bibles afresh and explore the place of the natural world within God's purposes and to celebrate God's love as displayed in creation and new creation. So that gives you a little flair for what it's like. And uh, yeah, I just, if, if creation care is something you're like, man, I really don't know a lot of what the Bible has to say about that or what even that would have to do with my practical day-to-day. This is a great mm. book to pick up as just a, a place to, to start uh, exploring that theme of yeah. Scripture. And they reflect on some particular issues at the end of the book. Am I right on that? I believe so. Yeah. I So I'm going to do what I call pulling a Bradford and that I haven't read this one cover to cover. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> feeling pretty good right now. Are you? Are you feeling really great? Well, yes. I felt like I could do that because I have predecessors. Little did I know that the Lord would reward well, me in my generosity and buying Jonathan on. Uh, in all seriousness, Jonathan, what would you say to someone uh, that would say, well, that just sounds like a bunch of liberal propaganda to me. It oh. sounds like that's just a pro-Green New Deal type of situation. With that book, what would you? How would how would you respond? I would say that you're <laughs> approaching the Bible through the lens of political ideology, not approaching politics through the lens of the Bible. Um, mm, okay. So yeah, there needs to be a reversal of lenses. Like, uh, and I mentioned that on Sunday. I mentioned that most of us get our ideas about creation care from the way our political imagination has been shaped. So when we hear any talk of creation, uh, especially caring for it we automatically associate it with the political party that seems to have the most items on their agenda that has to do with that. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, well, that's got to be a leftist thing. You know, where as Christians, we need to think first and foremost biblically about every issue uh, before we ever come to it. We talked about this a lot in our and campaign episode, you know, right. that, uh, that we need to think through each issue biblically 
and come to biblical conclusions, regardless of who may or may not agree with those conclusions politically, you know? And, and so, yeah, so we're not talking about embracing a certain political stance or policy or whatever, but what you learn from scripture may definitely affect the way you approach certain policies and such. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I would say what, what we need to do with everything, including creation care is return to the text, return to the text, read the text, let the spirit work through the word he inspired to convict and shape our hearts and shape our imaginations according to scripture. Great response. That was totally unplanned. Thank you. I knew that Jonathan would handle it like a champ. Uh, we're going to get you a press secretary job one day. Maybe, maybe in the future, Please 20, no. 25 Please. years or so. Can't Never. think of anything that's be more fun than that. Um, man, you guys did an interview earlier. Uh, I got to hear some of it. I'm just going to leave just a little bit. I'm just going to let people just, I'm just going to give them a little preview. They talked with Dr. Jonathan Pennington about aliens. <laughs> About Metallica? <laughs> I mean, I, golf? Just war? Just war? Pr- um, primarily, we talked about the, the Sermon, sermon on, on the, the- <laughs> I mean, Let me tell you, this this is it, it's an incredible interview. I think you're all going to enjoy it. Yeah, so here's the interview. All right. Well, we we are so excited to have Dr. Jonathan Pennington with us on Shades Midweek. Dr. Pennington, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No, it's a joy. Thank you for having me. Dr. Pennington, for those who don't know, uh, the reason we've got you on today uh, is because you have done extensive work, uh, both in the Gospel of Matthew and specifically on the Sermon on the Mount, and written a theological commentary uh, on on the Sermon on the Mount, which has been very helpful for both Brad and I as we've been preaching uh, through the early portion of the sermon, just the Beatitudes so far. So we uh, we reached out, and you graciously <laughs> agreed to, to come on, to our, come very, on our, little podcast. our very small podcast uh, okay, and, and talk, uh, talk Sermon on the Mount. But before we get sure. too deep into that, um, just for context for our listeners, could you share just a little bit uh, about yourself, your story, what you do? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So for the last 17 years, I've been a professor of New Testament at Southern Seminary here in Louisville. Uh, and I'm also a pastor of spiritual formation and uh, one of the two teaching pastors at Sojourn East Church here in Louisville, where I've been for about 10 years um, in different roles. And so uh, that's, you know, I live this kind of uh, say double life that, that communicates the wrong thing and don't live a double life in the bad <laughs> sense of that. but i mean i i live uh i have my foot in both the academic world quite a bit and in church ministry a lot uh and so i've been married for almost 29 years coming up here and we have six kids uh and I've been involved in ministry for about 30 years or so but it took a you know time to go get more academic training and uh I've been, you know, doing both of those things now for quite a few years. So it's a joy. That's awesome. And and I've actually had the, the privilege of taking a couple of classes from you uh, along the way. And one of the things I remember early on was you shared uh, part of your testimony and how you became a believer. Would, would you mind really quickly sharing with that? Because I, I just, I remember it just being crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it's got the fingerprints of God for sure. Yeah. So my father had died when I was very young. Uh, when I was two, and I grew up just, you know, a lot of 
a lot of brokenness and a lot of sadness and loneliness. And so by the time I was a teenager, uh, I was in big trouble <laughs> in terms of hair down the middle of my back. Not that there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but played in a heavy metal band and did a lot of not savory things. And uh, then I was just really kind of at a low point and my mom insisted I go to college and I just wanted to get as far away from the tiny town I grew up in and in uh, central Illinois. So I went to Northern Illinois University as a freshman uh, in 1988 and uh, kind of cold contact evangelism, a guy from Campus Crusade, as it was called in those days, uh, shared the four spiritual laws with me. Uh, I'm sure kind of not even maybe with incredible skill or anything, but uh, with a lot of sincerity and the spirit of God was just really convicting me. And on the third spiritual law, which is basically, you know, you're sinful and separated from God. I, you know, literally said to them, what can I do? <laughs> As I often described it, it was like, uh, like Ethiopian eunuch, except for the, you know, I had six kids part later, but, the, <laughs> but the, the, just the conviction of the Holy spirit, the clarity of understanding that came upon me uh, in that moment was powerful. And then God really provided a series of, a fathers for me over the course of the next 15 years, especially or so just three different men in sequence that really provided crucial kind of guidance to me uh, to become a man in a sense and become a, a fuller human in that sense. So very thankful. Uh, and that was, yeah, over 30 years ago, 33 years ago now. And just very thankful. And I've been able to stay involved with Crusade off and on over the years, done a lot of teaching for them as a result of that, and a lot of connections still with those fine people. I, I just love the thought. This guy walks up, cold turkey evangelism, shares the gospel, and and yeah, and now that guy leads a PhD <laughs> research department at a, at a major seminary. So it reminds me of the the testimony of Craig Keener. Have you heard his testimony? Uh, a little bit, but I don't remember the specifics. He. He was an outspoken atheist at the time, and I think he was stopped by two fundamentalist preachers downtown somewhere, and they made some argument for intelligent design uh, by pointing to a tall building that was next to them, and he said that it just got him thinking. <laughs> oh, next thing you he's know, he's a thinker, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a bright guy. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. Oh, well, you're you're a bit of a thinker yourself. Done just a little bit of thinking and reflecting on the Gospel of Matthew. Um, what what got you interested and focused on that gospel? Was that was that part of your uh, your dissertation work? I did, yeah. So at the University of St Andrews, I wrote a dissertation on uh, heaven and earth as a theme in Matthew. Yeah, but like uh, so, yeah. So for the last twenty plus years, Matthew has been the main focus of my intellectual energy, um, and I'm so thankful to God for that. Again, it's a providence that I could not have planned because I had originally thought I would study second Corinthians uh, when I was finishing my master of divinity in Chicago, the plan was to go and study second Corinthians and do a PhD in that. But in a, again, another little providential, beautiful little story, I kind of stumbled upon something in Matthew and one thing led to another and I ended up studying the Gospels. And looking back, I'm so thankful because I'm really a story person. I love literature and I love stories and and I love analyzing stories. And I think that's one of the ways God's really wired me. And so I'm so thankful to have gotten to spend the last over two decades 
giving so much of my intellectual and emotional energy to understanding these beautiful four books, especially of the of the Bible, the really epicenter of the Bible, in my opinion, uh, of the four Gospels. Now, you mentioned, just as an aside real quick, you, you mentioned getting your MDiv in Chicago. Did you go to TED's? Huh? Yeah, yeah, it's trendy. Uh, so I don't know if you know this. Uh, we, yep. we are an EFCA church. Um, oh yeah. So we, I was I was a free church pastor for five years. Um, in fact, when I when I was in college, I went to an E Free Church and was baptized in a in a free church. In fact, I just reconnected with that pastor recently. It was really neat. And then when I was in seminary at Trinity, I was an associate pastor in E Free Church for five years. Um, five solid years. It was wonderful. And I love, I love the FCA, you know, unity and the essentials, charity and the non-essentials. I, I love that. And that's really marked my life. I'm very, very thankful for that. Well, well, listen, whenever you, whenever you retire, you know, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, just come on and call it home and, okay. and you know, you're welcome. Okay. You're welcome back into the, into the fold. <laughs> There are there aren't a ton of EFCA churches in the south, so that's impressive. Oh, oh no, we're, we're 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 the only one here in Birmingham. Um, yeah. So, uh, and and we hope to see that change uh, in in the coming years through some church planning and such. But to um, sorry, I just had to go aside there. I was, I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure you went to tell. Oh yeah. Um, so you mentioned within the, the context of of the Gospel of Matthew being really interested in story. Uh, and then yet the book that Brad and I are reading right now, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, Human Flourishing, uh, it's it's focused on one of the non-narrative portions uh, right, of, right. of Matthew. So so what drew you to focus in on and want to write a book on the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, you know, just in talking with you guys, I'm, I'm realizing what needs to be on my, my gravestone, like a happy accident in <laughs> my gravestone because it's like it's what marks every one of these stories i mean honestly i was a young professor here probably, probably 15 or 16 years ago and i was teaching the gospels i was teaching matthew and then i just saw in the course catalog that they had offered a class not for years and years and years but i saw it was one of the offerings in the past was a class on the sermon on the mount and i thought, oh, I could do that. I have a PhD in Matthew, you know, no problem. And so I'll, I'll uh, offer to teach that as like a J term, like a January one week term, as we used to do a lot of those. And just to kind of as a way to, you know, make some extra money in the sense of like, you know, just kind of get some more teaching hours in. And very quickly, I realized, oh, I don't know what I'm doing here with the Sermon on the Mount. Like it was a whole world of books, and the history of interpretation that is that as i always say and i talk about this in the book a little bit you know you're in deep water when you not only find that there are a lot of books about your topic like in this case the sermon mount but there's a whole bunch of books that are about the books that are about your topic (laughs) so there's 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 this whole like we call tertiary literature that's summing up how people have read the sermon let alone all the stuff on the sermon itself right in fact if you want to think of it in terms of a library which is kind of an old metaphor now but there's not only in library congress bs 2575 which is all the matthew books and matthew commentaries there's a whole separate section and i should know the number off that my head i don't i think it's bl or something there's a whole separate section in the library just for books on the sermon on the mount right so it's like there's a you know there's no other portion of matthew that would have its own other separate Library of Congress heading. It's that significant. The Sermon on the Mount is over 
the course of the last 2000 years. And so very quickly, I realized, whoa, I'm way in over my head. Mm-hmm. And it began a journey um, where I taught that class for five Januarys in a row. And my apologies to the many people who took it the first couple of times. Cause I totally had no idea what I was talking about, <laughs> but I, but I started to, to understand more. And I really entered a, a kind of, self-education season to understand a bunch of stuff that I needed to beef up on, like uh, ethics or virtue, the, the whole issue of ethics, because the Sermon Mount has so much to say about Christian ethics. So I began to study a lot more in that area. You know, I had kind of my one required class in seminary on that, but I kind of gave myself a deeper education in what became called virtue ethics. And then Greco-Roman philosophy, I quickly realized that I to understand this, I really need to understand more about the kind of philosophical world in which the New Testament was written, because, again, that relates to ethics, because that's why you wrote ancient philosophy, was to help people learn to live well. And I quickly realized that that's what Sermon on was casting a vision for as well. So it really began a, uh, began a journey that's ongoing, of course, but was very intense for that first five to 10 years of educating myself on all kinds of issues related to the sermon. And then as I began to teach and preach a lot on the sermon, people began to say, wow, this is you know helpful. And I hadn't thought of it that way and, and the things I was kind of learning. So then I spent the next five years writing the book that you guys have, uh, The Sermon on the Mountain, Human Flourishing, which was kind of my way to get down on paper and get a clarity in my own thought about what I had come to understand about this most wonderful you know, portion of scripture. So yeah, again, it was just a happy accident <laughs> that I stumbled upon it, but I'm so thankful because it's really changed my life. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount has become like it has been for many Christians throughout the millennia, like, like the thing that's most on my mind about what it means to, to be a growing disciple of Christ. So I'm just very thankful. That's that's awesome. I uh, I, I wonder. You, you mentioned you know the the breadth of literature and uh, a variety of approaches and interpretation. Uh, obviously, throughout your study, you've come to view the sermon in a particular way, approach it a certain way. Uh, a perspective that you you mentioned many people have expressed like that's that's a fresh perspective. I I've never really thought of it that way before. Um, so I, I'm curious before we get kind of into the a little bit more of the weeds of what that perspective is uh, what are some of the common ways that you feel like the sermon gets approached and and misunderstood you know if, if your approach is bringing like you know this 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 freshness and, and a, a new understanding uh, what are some of the kind of the classical ways that Christians have approached the sermon that maybe are not as helpful ways to read it yeah I think um in good virtue mode, we can identify two errors that fall off either side of the knife edge of the truth, and the truth of which is found in, in kind of holding these things in tension or walking the tightrope of it. On the one side would be that the Sermon on the Mount gives you this set of things you have to do to earn God's favor, right? right. And and I wouldn't even say that most Christians have actually really thought that, but um like I, I couldn't say that's the older view that was rejected by Protestantism or something. That's not the case at all. Most people didn't read it that way, but there's always the human tendency towards legalism. And you could read the Sermon on the Mount in this kind of way that it's entrance requirements, you know, into knowing God. On the other extreme would be what you would find in a lot of Protestantism, which is that they'll take Luther, for example, that basically the Sermon on the Mount shows you this impossible ideal that you could never reach 
therefore you see your need for Christ's forgiveness. So it, it kind of paints this picture of um, this perfect way of living that's impossible, actually, and that forces you to flee back to Christ. So that fits in the Lutheran kind of system of everything is either law or gospel. Everything's either showing you that you stink or it's speaking words of grace to you. Right. And in this scenario, the Sermon on Mount would be read as law, basically, and that's a, showing you that you're not able to connect with God. I don't think either of those is the intention of Jesus or Matthew. In the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think either of those really gets at the heart of what the sermon's about. The sermon is an invitation to, in, in response to God's grace, to learn to see and be in the world in a certain way that promises true human flourishing. It's a, it's an invitation uh, to discipleship, to take Jesus' yoke upon you, because that is not just a duty that we're you know, commanded, but it's because that is the way, the only place we're going to find life. Jesus has come that we might have life and have it abundantly, or he's come that we might have flourishing, which is how the Beatitudes all start off. Flourishing is, you know, that's what the Greek word makarios means, happy or flourishing. Here's what it looks like. So, so I think that it's either those extremes I'm trying to say are not helpful and instead present a picture of what I think is the intention of the Shema Mount as a, again, an invitation to true human flourishing centered in Christ, oriented around God, God and his coming kingdom. And, and to tackle that and to lay out your perspective, uh, you, you chose to do that through a theological commentary. Um, that's, that's kind of the, the subtitle underneath your title, a theological commentary. Yep. Uh, maybe for our, our listeners who may not know what exactly that means or, or how that's dis- a distinct type of commentary. Uh, could, could you just briefly define what a theological commentary is and, and why that was what you wanted to write to communicate your uh, your vision of what's going on in the sermon? <laughs> yeah, I think I just made up that phrase, actually. I mean, other people use it, but I just made it. I don't, I don't, there's not like a, that definition. We're, we're, that, we're revealing think. the secrets of the trade now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, but what I mean by it is it is a commentary in the sense that at least half of the book, the second half of the book, is a pretty traditional commentary, meaning you have the text and then you have the author, me in this case, expounding, exploring, dealing with issues of the text, um, you know, at least phrase by phrase or sentence by sentence or verse by verse or a little paragraph by paragraph. So in that sense, it's a commentary. It's not like a book of, you know, practical advice on leadership. Or, right. You know, I mean, right. it, it is right. a certain genre of a commentary. So that's part of it. But the reason I think I called it theological is twofold. First of all, the first half of the book is, and then the last chapter as well, uh, are doing more than a commentary. They're actually providing a way of thinking about what's happening in the Sermon on the, on the Mount altogether. All and it is what I just described as an invitation to virtue. So I wrestle with what's not usually in a commentary. I have whole chapters on what certain key ideas in the Sermon on the Mount, like the word makarios and the word teleos. I have whole chapters on what those words mean and how those contribute to our theological and practical and kind of reading of the sermon. And then I have other chapters, like the final chapter kind of says, how does the Sermon on the Mount integrate with the rest of the Bible's teaching? So those are things you wouldn't typically find in a commentary. And then the other way that I think it's kind of a theological commentary in addition to that is that I am not afraid to kind of press into the ethical 
and invitational aspects of it, even in the commentary proper. In other words, it's not just the commentary of, you know, here's the, what the Greek word means or whatever. It's, it's intentionally trying to be a kind of integrative, um, whole person kind of approach to the commentary. So I think those are the two senses in which I decided that calling it a theological commentary would be helpful. You know, maybe someone might dispute whether that's the best way to describe that or not, but that's, we were trying to indicate that it's not just what you'd expect from a commentary necessarily. Right, right, for sure. And and part of the goal you mentioned there is helping uh, people uh, read the sermon a certain way, like educate people on how to read the sermon. So for... For our listeners, what what advice do you give to someone about here? Here's the best way to come and be a good reader of uh, you know scripture in general, but more specifically of the Sermon on the Mount. You you talk in those early chapters about the model reader, um, mm-hmm. and, yeah, uh, and the model reader, the reader that God expects, and the reader that will most benefit from reading Holy Scripture is one who is uh, has a posture of receptivity. Uh, you're not approaching the Bible to, you know, dissect it and, you know, or what I always call Viking exegesis, where we, you know, you sail the the boat of your life up to the shore of the scripture, run in, knock a few verses over the head and, and run back and, you know, sail back away to your own life. Uh, that's instead we're, we're meant to go and learn to live in the strange new world of the Bible that we're, we're meant to be shaped by it. And so, it's it's a posture of receptivity, a posture of teachability, um, and it's also ecclesially located. That is that you recognize that you're reading as part of a community, a long 2,000-year history of Christian community, but also in a church where you are seeking to grow and help others grow to be more conformed into the image of Jesus, to be more like God uh, in that sense. And so... Uh, that that is the model reader, and so I think that's the place you start. Um, and the Sermon on the Mount's easy because it's not like big, fancy, complicated questions of the problem of evil or something. It's like right at heart level stuff from the beginning, mm-hmm. and all the way through. It's you know it's a very powerful and poignant, um, potent uh, section of scripture that you can't avoid feeling the pinch of it. If I can get a fourth P in there, uh, that it is. Um, it's, it's easy to read the sermon very uh, personally. There's my fifth P. Okay, there you go. Well, we're going. Can I come up with another one? I don't know. Uh, but uh, I think you so just that, added a new chapter. Yeah. Oh. There you go. I should have. Yeah. Uh, that's... What did I say? Poignant, powerful, pinching, personal, and something else. I don't know. They're, those are all in there. So. Well, Jonathan is the king of alliteration. I think he could add one. But let, let's just keep rolling. Okay. <laughs> Well, uh, like we we said before the interview, we're we're currently going through the Beatitudes one at a time, and Jonathan and I have both relied heavily on your interpretation, and we've given you credit in the sermon, just to be clear. No Uh, problem. (laughs) uh, But we've relied heavily on your interpretation of Makarios. Could you talk a little bit about why you interpret the word flourishing and what you mean when you say flourishing or better yet, what you think Jesus means when he says flourishing. So, yeah. 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 This was a really important part of my whole, that 10 year journey and that I mentioned before of kind of teaching through and writing on the sermon. 
in a way that it really had a big impact on me personally too. Um, yeah, just to, to come to recognize that what Jesus is offering is what the whole Bible is. Again, it's an invitation to learn to inhabit the world in a certain way, to see mm. and be in the world in a certain way. And it's always towards the end of God restoring us to a state and a place and experience and a way of being that is described as shalom, you can, or um, flourishing. And that that's really what the whole message of the Bible is about. And in the book, after this book called Jesus the Great Philosopher, I basically take this idea of human flourishing and expand it across the whole Bible and at a lower level than the book you've read. That's, you know, more of a kind of an overview of how the whole Bible relates to the issue of human flourishing. But, and, and the idea is just that this is God really, his, his redemptive work, his original design and creation, and then his redemptive work that culminates in Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, is about restoring the image of God in us, uh, the the goodness of all of creation, the goodness of humanity, and that that's what God's about. And that if we think of Christianity without thinking of that, then we're really missing what the actual end goal is. You know, I, I can't help but think of we just at our church we just finished preaching nine weeks in Genesis one to two, and we called it sacred. And the whole point of the series was that the the way the story of the Bible starts is with goodness, not with sinfulness. That comes later in chapter three, and it's a huge part of the Bible story. But the actual foundation of the entire biblical worldview and message and goal, and it's the end goal as well, is goodness. You know, that, that God, everything he's made is created good, including humanity it's the, in the seventh instance of goodness in genesis one we're told that it was very good when he created mm-hmm. humanity right it's mm-hmm. all very good in genesis one at the, at the beginning of chapter two and so that's the goal is to restore that this edenic you know this place like eden kind of state of human flourishing which the old testament calls shalom uh, the New Testament calls flourishing or happiness or makaria. So all that was the background that only kind of got filled in when I began to spend a lot of time, or spent a long time, thinking about that one particular Greek word, makarios, mm. and its Hebrew underneath it, which is asher or ashrei, which both don't mean blessing in the sense of God actively creating life. It it's instead a description of the state of true human flourishing. That's what Asher and Makarios and Beatus in Latin, which is why we call them the Beatitudes, all three of those words mean basically the exact same thing. It's where one person is describing to another person what the state of true human flourishing looks like. And so that's really, once it, it took like literally five years of beating my head against how to translate that word, that it finally clicked and then it like made sense of the entire um, Sermon on the Mount and made sense of really the whole Bible for me mm-hmm. to see that this was the theme. It's kind of like Indiana Jones, like by faith, he steps out on the, you know, in the last crusade, steps out on the rock and then all the other, you know, the pathway of the rocks light up and you can see which way to go. That's really, really what it was for me for the word Makarios. Once I finally understood that it doesn't mean blessing, or blessed and hashtag blessed kind of way, but it means right. 
it means an invitation to see often differently than what we think is true human flourishing to see what God says is true human flourishing and by that to be invited to, to inhabit the world in those ways. And when you do, you'll find life, life abundant that we're promised. Well, that's, uh, that's what actually hooked me in to your entire argument because right before we began this series on the Sermon on the Mount over the summer, we'd done a series through the Psalms and beginning just with Psalm, Psalm 1, 1, I mean, yeah. the, the mm-hmm. first thing that I was confronted with was, was Asher or Ashray and, mm-hmm. um, and dealing with what that word meant. And, and I had settled in a very similar place using s- some similar verbiage to, to what you've described. And so as soon as you began to make that argument, especially show, showing the Septuagintal connections between mm-hmm. uh, the way that, word. Yeah, yeah. that word is always uh, brought over with Makarios, uh, I was like, okay, I'm sold. <laughs> I'm convinced. Oh, but well, yeah, it's not an accident that the beginning of the Psalter and the beginning of Jesus' teachings both use the word that is describing what the nature of true happiness is. That's oh, not an accident. Oh, yeah. Well, and and in your book, yeah. you draw out the parallels between Psalm yep. one and a lot of the the sermon, including the whole two ways to live, and 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 that being yep. the way Jesus ends the sermon, uh, with a lot of emphasis there and the images that he gives. Yeah, yeah, all of that was very helpful in making things click into place yeah. for me because it was very, it was very fresh. Uh, I'm curious is, uh, as I was reading, I believe it was Francis' commentary. He he chooses mm-hmm. happiness, so mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm curious if you considered happiness, if there were any other runner-up words, and what ultimately made you land with flourishing. Yeah, I think I wrestle with that in that chapter a little bit too, and then but certainly more than what I wrote down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I spent a long time I had a list at some point of like 85 different possibilities oh, for I would love to, to translate that list. it just and there there were just there's no perfect translation equivalent into English um and there's sometimes phrases I think it was from France I got the Welsh phrase you know bright is their world or something like that I think yes, is what yes. and how you translate the Welsh um or you know, every every translation has its own advantages and disadvantages. Right. One is like congratulations, which is <laughs> kind of weird, but you know that one doesn't. I'm not recommending that at the end of the day. But the good part of it is that you're there is a kind of joyful commendation of a good state. You know, like if you get if somebody if a friend of yours gets married and you say congratulations, that's an appropriate thing to say in the sense of what you're communicating is, I am happy for you that you have entered this state of goodness mm. you know that's kind of what that means mm. and even if you know most people don't think that when they're writing the word congratulations i'm happy that's for you that you've entered a state of goodness but that's <laughs> you know that is what it means um or i think i say this in the book as well the australian phrase good on you you know good on you which now my you know australian friends have told me is can often be kind of sarcastic and ironic instead. <laughs> but the but the old, you know, good for you, like we might say it like that or something. But the older sense of that is I'm happy for you that you are finding this place of goodness, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you say that in an ancient form like Psalm 1 or the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 3, 12, other philosophers, Seneca, and other lots of people talk this way. What you're doing is you're, you're, or Proverbs 1 to 9, it's where you are a, an older, wiser person. It's painting a picture for another, for a younger person, usually, of what 
is going to bring you the life that you long for. You know, that's what a macroism is. And uh, that's, you know, what's the best way to translate in English? I don't know. I mean, I, get, I went with flourishing, but I don't mean by that every time you see the word Macarius, flourishing is the best translation. It's not, sure. probably. But I, I was just trying to get at something happy. I think most of us would not say happy because it's too thin mm. and temporary of a word now. Um, thriving, flourishing, probably are closer to it. Um, but yeah, there's no great, there's no perfect translation. Mm-hmm. Well, we have just a few more questions for you, but before we ask those, uh, you have agreed to uh, to do something that we do with most people we interview, which is uh, we like to call a lightning round. I don't know if you were anticipating our theme song here. I was not. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I think he's just now realizing the uh, the standard of podcast that he has agreed to be on we've we've withheld a lot of jingles that we have for this podcast (laughs) out of respect thank you yes all right so the lightning round here we are we're going to ask you a question and you answer as fast as you can whatever comes to your mind are you ready maybe all right dr pennington how do you like your eggs oh scrambled that's easy texting Mm. or talking Sorry, that's the only way eggs are scrambled. Yep. Oh, uh, <laughs> um, texting or talking? Which what's your preferred oh, mode sorry, of communication? I, I missed the second question. <laughs> sorry, texting or talking? Gosh, um, wow. Uh, I mean, I text a lot, so I guess try texting. All right. Do you listen to audiobooks? Oh, nonstop. That's what I mostly do. Okay. The reason I asked that question is do because... audiobooks count as having read a book? <laughs> Yes, it's it's ridiculous that someone would say no. I don't know why they would not. It's it's that's an absurd, absurd distinction that people make. It makes no sense to me. I, I asked that I asked that selfishly because I listen to a lot of audiobooks and I always felt guilty about it. And I think you tweeted that you, you really you liked not. audiobooks, and it freed you, me. The, it was the good news I needed for, to hear. For sure, I don't. I do not understand why anyone would think that, except for pure Smitty nuts. So there you go, gauntlet thrown. <laughs> I love it. Oh, first celebrity crush. First? Or the first one you can some... remember. <laughs> of the many. Oh, my. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, Elizabeth Montgomery from Bewitched. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. That... That's a show from the 60s. I, <laughs> I grew up in the 70s. But I grew up in the 70s. And then the, the current equivalent of that would be Amy Adams. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Okay, name something that you think is overrated. Starbucks coffee. Oh, couldn't agree more. Right, you're you're amongst friends here. With are that. you? You're mm-hmm. a coffee snob, correct? I am. I mean, I because of convenience, I go to Starbucks a lot because there's one in walking distance. But I, I am never satisfied with the actual cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um. Okay. Uh, have you ever worn socks with sandals? Not happily. <laughs> just does not belong That's to the car that sounds about that sounds about right I, I don't know that i have but i probably have at some point but i i not intentionally yeah uh when you see animals in a zoo do you get happy or sad uh, happy <laughs> okay what would you choose I mean, for- not because they're captive <laughs> but because i get to see them so. yes 
What would you choose for your last meal? Um, yeah, probably a good steak. A good steak, probably. What What's for dinner tonight at the Pennington household? Oh, we go out to eat every meal, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're at the end of parenting in the sense that our kids, you know, we've got a kajillion kids and we're all busy and and uh, we, you know, usually just grab something together. Mm, fair enough. Whoever's around, whoever's around, yeah. Yeah. Is Kanye West a good artist? I I'm not a fan, but I don't really can't say I've listened much. <laughs> I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan. So oh. If you want if you want to know contemporary music that I love, it's Taylor Swift. Uh, yeah. What do you think about the new albums? Uh yeah. I mean, you mean the her version of Red? Yes. 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 Yeah. I was celebrating it along with everybody. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I actually think her last two, the, album, the COVID albums, are both really some of her best work, even though her whole deep catalog is like rich treasure trove. Treasure's old and new. Matthew 13. That's what I think about. I love it. You know, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed those albums as well. Okay, but moving on. Here, well, here we go. If you could see one band, dead or alive, perform live, who would it be? This will be our last question. Hmm. Uh, you know, going back to childhood, probably Sticks. <laughs> Sticks is. Oh yeah. I don't even know. They were a big band in the in the seventies. I mean, I went to a lot of concerts as an adolescent and still go to these kind of concerts. But that was one. That was one of my very favorite bands that I never saw. I mean, I saw Pink Floyd at the end. I saw mm. Ario Speedwagon. That was my first concert. I mean, I've seen a lot of people. But I never got to see Sticks, and I think they still do kind of the state fair, <laughs> you know, seventy-year-old kind of right band kind of thing. So I might, but I think seeing them back in their heyday, that would have been pretty fun. I, I yeah. do have one more question, Brad. If you have one more, you can do it as well. But my question is: earlier, you said you played in metal bands. What's the best name uh, a band you played in ever had? Oh, I was only in one band, and it was called Roadkill. <laughs> so. It was pretty, and we were pretty, it was very Metallica influence. We were, it was all Metallica with our life. Oh, Early yeah. Metallica. Oh, yeah. Our worship pastor is a huge Metallica fan. Yeah, he would be playing. Yeah, I saw that. the Master of Puppets tour in you know, whatever it was, 86 or something like that. And yeah, we were totally into Metallica. Oh, uh, awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. I, I have two questions, and then, and then I think I'm done. Do you think aliens could exist? Uh, I do. You know, my wife is really into this, not like into like aliens itself, but, you know, just the kind of the expansiveness of the universe. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's possible. And I mean, I love how C.S. Lewis handles it in his, space, his science fiction trilogy. He has all these other creatures. But then he also has this very interesting move he makes where he says, if you've ever read the science fiction trilogy, you've got Martians and mm. Venetians and other people, the Awari, I think they're called. And this, but once the incarnation occurs, that's the one God of the universe putting his stamp on humanity. And so that even though you have these, in the world Lewis creates, even though you have these other um, creatures of, from 
that are totally different humanoids, there is something special about humanity because of the incarnation. So that was a very lightning answer, but no, yeah, that's that great. I, very, I think we have another I, podcast I episode. <laughs> yeah, get my wife on here. Yeah, I was about to say we got another <laughs> interview to do. Okay, and then no, wait, oh, I was just going to say, did you ever play golf at St. Andrews? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I was absolutely horrible, but yeah, we played all the time. Um, and uh, I mean, regularly. I play golf more now than I did then, probably. Oh but, goodness! And, I, and I'm and I'm much better now than what's I was then. Your, what's your handicap? Yeah. Oh, I'm not very good. I mean, I probably am. I hit. I'm a kind of somewhere between bogey and double bogey golfer. Okay. So, if you ever make it to Birmingham, I'll, uh, rounds on me. Brad, okay. Brad is Brad is Good. a huge golfer. He's he, he loves okay. it. And he got That's the good. opportunity to play at St. Andrews a few years ago. Yes. Oh, fun. Yep, it was yeah. great. Yeah, I know. Well, well I, I know you know you you love our our questions about aliens and eggs and such, but just to to ask you just a couple of closing questions here, uh, back to the sermon on the you mount. You made it. You made it through. Right. Congratulations. You did. You did. Congratulations. You. you were well prepared. Thank you. That's our live studio yeah. audience. Thank um, you. Uh, you mentioned several times throughout our conversation just about how much of an impact the sermon has had on you personally. And I'm just I'm just curious if there's one or two things that come to mind specifically that you might highlight, whether it's particular things in the sermon, sections of it that have just really been impactful for you in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it'd be easy to just kind of walk through the whole thing, um, which we can't do on time to do. But obviously the Beatitudes is the very fact that he's painting a vision for what life really is. I mean, that once I kind of got that, that you know, reframed my whole understanding of the Bible. But then the heart of the Sermon on the Mount that runs from 517 to 720, which you guys haven't gotten to yet, but you will, um, the heart of it is about the heart. And that's the, you know, that is the, the big thing too, that, that what Jesus is emphasizing throughout the sermon is that God sees and cares about our inner person, that we need to resist diligently the temptation to externalize our religion and instead always recognize that God wants to do a transformative work from the inside out and that that that's just beautifully haunting (laughs) you know at every moment like in terms of just you know daily personal thought life to interactions with other people that always recognizing that God is doing and wants to do a deeper work in my inner person and that I need to be functioning from that place, not from this false self, this, this external religious person, but instead from a kind of a sensitivity and a, and a growing virtuous place of the inner person. So that's, that's the part of the single mount that's forever, you know, really transformed how I think about my Christian faith. Mm. Yeah, it's so good. Um, at, the end of the book, you have uh, six theses that summarize the arguments that you've made throughout the book. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about thesis five, where you said virtue and grace are compatible and not opposites. Could you say a little bit more about that in regards to the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, thanks. I think it, you know, it relates back to that thing I was saying before about ways that you can misread the sermon and the way the sermon has been has been misread largely that in, especially in the evangelical protestant tradition we don't use the word virtue very much i mean i'm thankfully 
I use it a lot and, and I'm seeing increasingly more people are. I was just down in Brazil last week at a conference by evangelicals on virtue and human development. You know, so I'm glad that they're, that is kind of we're rediscovering that language. But the, that I, I, my point is that virtue is a really important idea and really reality and experience that is not, it's not helpful if we think of it as the opposite of grace because grace is really an invitation it's it's a kindness a disposition of god and forgiveness toward us and a disposition of love and welcome that is a gift that expects a reciprocity not of equal reciprocity but but the very idea of gift of, of grace is this relational interchange that's unequal but it's still an interchange. So if you think about the love between a husband and a wife, there, you know, we could call that grace in the sense, not all the grace means, of course, but you could call it grace in the sense that it is both rooted and based and upheld by love and a disposition of positivity toward the other, but it's not without expectation, right? Mm. I mean, when you're married, there are things you can and cannot, you, you cannot do, and there are things you must not do, and there are things you should do. And that doesn't make it not love. That's what a relationship is, right? It's a relationship has both positive disposition and expectation. And that's what I'm trying to get at there, that we need to rediscover this idea of virtue, because virtue focuses on what it means to develop to be a full human, and that is all rooted and sustained by God's grace towards us. But it does mean that we develop habit, we develop habits and sensibilities that do mean we live differently, right? And those mm-hmm. things are not in competition with each other. Obedience and grace, as soon as we start pitting those against each other, you're just not going to be able to make sense of the Bible. Yeah. But, but the whole message of the Bible, but we do all the time. Like we, because we're so scared as Protestants to be legalistic, which is, that's a right fear. We don't want to be legalistic, but we're so scared of that, that we've come to think of grace in a way that is not what the Bible means by grace. It doesn't mean license. And of course, Paul's already addressing this. I mean, he, every time he talks about grace, he's quick to say, I don't mean you could do whatever you want, you know, but, but we still tend to, we have that same kind of licentious attitude toward grace. And so what I'm trying to do is kind of re reinvigorate and re discover for our tradition, this great ancient and biblical and Christian notion of virtue as a way to kind of hold those things together. Mm. No, that's, that's so helpful. And as you were talking, I'm wondering too, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. If a robust doctrine of union with Christ can also help us in this conversation where we can talk about God's justifying power. Uh, we're in union with Christ. We are justified by his grace, but also within that union, God not only justifies, but he sanctifies. I'm thinking of Calvin and the double grace there. And so there's this mm-hmm. grace that's not only this justifying power, but also this sanctifying power. And I wonder if that kind of comes alongside and would make some space for what you were talking about as well, and maybe give us this larger vision of grace. I think so. And I do think that's where the reform tradition that is Calvin is better again than the Lutheran tradition, which tends to exercise and and function in stark dichotomies. I mean, the Lutheran tradition and Luther himself was very much about contrast. So law versus gospel, you know, grace versus 
legalism. And the Reformed tradition was always much more balanced, I think, in terms of like the third use of the law. Now, I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not fully in that camp in a number of ways, but I do find the Reformed tradition better than the Lutheran tradition on those kind of issues. Mm. And Calvin does emphasize union with Christ more uh, than I think Luther does, probably. Mm. So yeah, I think that's a good biblical metaphor to describe it. I still like the category of virtue Mm -hmm. um, as its own kind of thing, because it talks about human development more. Like the, the idea of union with Christ and the language of justification and sanctification, those are great biblical ideas and mm-hmm. theological categories, but they don't they don't do all the heavy lifting or don't do all the work that I think an idea of virtue does, in my opinion. Well, Dr. Pennington, uh, you've been very generous with your time, and I, I just have two final kind of selfish questions for, for me, and then Brad, okay. if you have anything you can wrap up one is as, as we continue to have this conversation about virtue and uh, evangelical recovery of it is is there a book that you would suggest for a pastor uh, to, to read to help recover that robust sense of virtue wow man that's a great question <laughs> um, you can always I should, e- I should e- have... email us later <laughs> no I should I should have a good answer I mean I you know I I'm on the show, I'll just say, I, mean, I do think I try to unpack it in the Sermon on the Mount Human Flourishing book some, and then the subsequent book, Jesus the Great Philosopher, even though it doesn't use the language of virtue a ton, it's the same idea. It's, again, it's an invitation to gotcha. learn to inhabit the world in a certain way, and that book is written for lay people. I mean, it's for thoughtful lay people. It's definitely written at a more accessible level, uh, Jesus the Great Philosopher. Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sure as soon as we get off the call, I'm going to think of five books. Uh, but other than that, I should, I should uh, just go read Plato and <laughs> Socrates. Well, I mean, I mean Aristotle at least. I mean, I I do think there's a lot of good in that. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's a strong theme in the whole Christian tradition. Mm. Uh, but yeah, what's coming to mind are both philosophical works and then other more formative works that are maybe not the most accessible. So yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no, no worries at all. No worries. Well, well, my final question is just, uh, as we are preaching through the sermon on the Mount and, you know, we'll be going through the rest of it at the beginning of next year. I I'm just curious for you personally, what do you find as the most difficult passage, uh, to interpret, to preach and teach in the sermon? Yeah. I mean, the, the one that has, gives commentators the biggest fits uh, is definitely seven six, right? Seven five. I don't have me. Uh, the don't give to dogs what's holy or castor pearls for swine. I mean, I, I'm not like personally exercised by it, but I just mean in terms of at the end of the day when you read all the commentaries on it, nobody really knows exactly what that means, and also how it fits structurally. How seven one to six fits into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is again. I have my own opinion about both what that verse means and how seven one to six fits. But I, I think most people have spent significant time in the sermon will recognize that section and that verse are the most uh, less the least friendly (laughs) uh, to make sense of the whole. I'd say. 
Well, you yeah. you can definitely expect an email from from Brad or I with whoever gets stuck with that passage. I think I'm assigning it to Brad right now. I was going to say you don't want to share That's your opinion. You don't want to share your opinion, do you? It's in the commentary. By the commentary. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Oh well, Brad, yep. do you have any other questions? Or I'm taking it that look as a no. <laughs> I was looking through our list. I. I, I was curious to hear your, your thoughts on retaliation, uh, the section on retaliation in the Sermon on the Mount. I was just listening to a podcast with Russell Moore and Shane Claiborne. And I don't know if you're familiar with this. Russell Moore is doing this segment where he brings somebody on who disagrees with him, and Russell Moore just has to listen and ask questions. I think it's, I think it's really great. And so they had a conversation about pacifism and just war and uh, Claiborne relies on this, on, um, let's see, what is it? It's the chapter five passage. Yeah. Verse 38 through, oh goodness, 42, uh, relies, I I don't know if I would say heavily, but it's definitely integral to his argument. And so I was Mm -hmm. just curious with uh, kind of the way that you... <laughs> That's a big question at the end of the interview. Really? Come on. <laughs> I, have a, I, have a, I have a tendency to do this. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, you, you don't have to give a long answer, but I, I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts uh, in light of, of your approach, how you think we can responsibly apply this text to um, that 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 debate, that dialogue, uh, this issue that the church continues to be divided on? I will give a very short answer. Um, <laughs> because that, that is a huge ethical and moral and ecclesial topic and social issue. Um, you know, the, the focus of the Sermon on the Mount is on postures of the heart. It's on you, the individual agent, the agency of the, or the moral agent in living in community uh, learning how to inhabit the world in a way that accords with God's will, nature, and coming kingdom. That's what righteousness means in Matthew. Whole person behavior that accords with God's will, nature, and coming kingdom. And I think that's the primary, that's the first application of those texts, is the idea of your posture of heart towards others in a non-retaliatory way. And that that's probably, that's for most of us, enough to work on for a whole lifetime. Right. I mean, that, in other words, that's the just learning to inhabit the world in a non-retaliatory way towards those who hurt and wound and scare us. Right. Now, I'm not saying that that text doesn't also speak to the broader issue of just war and all things like that. But I just want to make sure that we recognize that the, the primary thrust of it is the, the moral agent becoming a different kind of person, uh, trusting the Lord to bring vengeance. Um, but that doesn't answer all the issues of just war or what do you do if you see someone being, you know, where lethal force is the only way to stop someone from hurting somebody else. There's always these broader ethical complex issues that we can wrestle with and that no single verse is going to give all the answer to. But what is significant is the focus on the moral agent developing to be a certain kind of person, which is, again, what virtue is. So hopefully that helps. No, absolutely, and I think I think that's enough for Brad to work on for the rest of his life for sure. Yeah, I'm, that's why I brought it up. Yeah, I'm working on not retaliating right. against him right now for for asking <laughs> such a large question. At that, no. me too. Me, I'm really sure. 
and, and I just wanted to set you up so that you could shine. That was all I was doing. You, thank you. Very thank good you. answer. Thank you. Well, in all seriousness, uh, Dr. Penny, we do thank you so much for giving us so much of your time today. And it's just been a joy to get to talk with you. We've really enjoyed and benefited from your work and just really wanted to uh, affirm you in that. And I, I'm sure there will be a few emails from us in the future as we continue to preach through the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you guys are doing that. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, this has been another episode of Shades Midweek. We will see you.